Welcome to the Republican Professor. This morning we have with us a very special guest, unlike all of the other non-special guests that we've ever had. We have Dr. Chad Bogosian. Welcome, Chad. Hey, thank you for having me. It's great to uh, see you and uh, have a chance to chat a little bit. Absolutely. I'm very happy you're here. Chad, uh, you have been teaching now for a long time. How long have you been teaching? Let's see. I think I just completed my 14th year teaching at the college level. Um, I started teaching uh, philosophy at the college level uh, as a graduate student, which was one of the uh, one of the many great features of my graduate program. We were given the opportunity to teach uh classes uh, fully by ourselves uh, through most of our uh, program. And so not only did that give me good experience, but um, I, I enjoyed teaching. I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit. But so I started as a graduate student and um, full time. Um, I just completed my seventh year at the community college, Clovis Community College that I teach at here in the Central Valley of California. Prior to that, I taught for two years at uh, Grand Canyon University. And right out of my PhD program, I had a one-year visiting uh, professorship at Azusa Pacific. So uh, each of those have been, uh, those full-time uh, positions have been uh, very formative and, and a great joy, all each a different kind of school. But uh, during my PhD program, I did start um, teaching and I taught at both private um, liberal arts type colleges as well as uh, uh, the University of Arkansas, where I was working on a PhD. Tell me again, how many uh, years you spent at uh, uh, Grand Canyon? Uh, two years. Two years. Okay. Great. That's a great overview. How, how many courses do you think that you taught while you were doing your PhD? The ones that had your name on the syllabus as the, the professor? I should have, I should have put that down before I got on with you today, but I think, uh, I averaged about. You don't know the exact number. Yeah, yeah, I don't have the exact number in my head, but uh, okay. I would say over sorry, the course. Sorry of, to put you on the spot, then. <laughs> that's okay. Over the, yeah, I'd say over the course of four years between the semesters and the summertime, probably a dozen courses, maybe fifteen courses uh, across different schools. Yeah. So, so you got your PhD. You have your PhD. Yes, sir. How long did that take you to earn your PhD from start to finish? Yeah, uh, for me, it was, okay, so the program I was in at Arkansas, like some programs, they separate a master's and PhD. So um, I did a second master's in philosophy there uh, prior to technically being officially in the PhD program. So I applied to the PhD program. So that whole time there, I was at Arkansas for six years. Um, but the, the PhD proper uh, was four years between coursework, comprehensive exams, a language, and the writing of the dissertation. Uh, but I, I typically talk about the whole six years because uh, yeah. together because it really was, I mean, even though there was a break and I actually wrote a master's thesis uh, and graduated with a master's there, um, it was all part of uh kind of why we were there and, and so did, on. Did, so, you have and did you have comprehensive exams for your master's? 
No, I, um, there it was uh, a thesis. Okay. Some schools I, I hear, uh, I'm familiar with, they give it uh, an option or you do both. Some it's uh, thesis or coursework uh, choice, but there you have to write a master's thesis and defend it. And I wrote my master's thesis there on uh, Alistair McIntyre's virtue ethics. Um, that's, uh, he was reading him in a previous master's program, his book after virtues, what got me in, interested in virtue ethics. And so I wrote on him kind of at a juncture of, I guess, what people would probably now call early McIntyre, because some of his views have significantly changed since I wrote that thesis. So some of my criticism wouldn't apply anymore, uh, which is oh. fine. But it, yeah, okay. it's very, uh, yeah, it was very interesting and um, uh, focused on kind of questions related to the um, uh, ontological and epistemological uh, implications of his view. And so those are two big philosophy terms. Ontology deals with um, kind of the overall view of reality, I guess you might say, what virtues are, uh, what their nature are, uh, what their nature is, um, how we acquire them or not, and uh, whether his sort of overarching framework provided a robust enough framework for that, uh, for those kinds of things. And then um, and then moral knowledge was kind of an interest for me too, whether his view of um, the virtues at, that he held at the time and after virtue and a couple other key works um, provided an adequate view of uh, knowing what the virtues are. And, hmm. and I was arguing my thesis that, that at the time it, they didn't, but oh, I think, okay. yeah, I, I think that some of his later work uh, has provided, uh, I think, a, a I think a better um, way for him to secure moral knowledge, but there are still people who I think have that kind of critique uh, depending on how you read him and so on. But, yeah. Well, what's your like Dallas Willard. I know. Yeah, go ahead. No, what, Dallas Willard from USC uh, had this kind of common critique uh, in his book, uh, his book that was finished after he passed away in 2013. Uh, but he has a chapter um, in there on McIntyre and Rawls and others where he argues that, you know, McIntyre's view can't give uh, an adequate account of moral knowledge. And I'm sympathetic to that where moral knowledge, just if I can, this will be basic and we can go. You deeper. can take, yeah, but, take, I was going to ask you what to expand yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah. So moral knowledge, at least as, as I'm interested in it, is the idea that we can actually have direct contact with cognitively and be in contact with uh, what's right and good. We can actually know what's right and good. And that's so your, that's your view. Yes. Okay. That our minds uh, can be in, in direct, immediate uh, contact with, and I'm, I'm being general here, but, and we can delve deeper, but um, is that position sometimes called ethical intuitionism or something like that? Uh, that would be one version, I think. Yeah, okay. uh, ethical intuitionism. Uh, I know Michael Humer well, has how a you, book. How we I know? Book, I have his book on that. So. Yeah, so ethical intuitionism would be kind of sort of the how, but whether you can, we can know these things directly uh, or not is sure. kind of I think prior to the how I would say, uh, and so I'm I'm of the conviction that that even children, right, can in some sense directly know uh, what's right and wrong or good or evil, let's say. And to give an example of this, uh, my son's eight and a half, and 
Uh, he's just started reading the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, I've been I've been trying to get him into that all year, and finally three weeks ago he just said, "Okay, I think I'm ready." And so, awesome. awesome. Yeah, I promised to read him with him, and he's he's <laughs> faster than me. Uh, he's already on like the third or fourth book, and I, I just finished the first one. But what I've been slowly kind of planting the seeds for him that one of the reasons I want to read these with him, uh, and honestly, he's made a comment like, "This is the most violent thing I've ever read." <laughs> which is yeah. partly because we're careful what we have him read, but they get gifts from witcher weapons. <laughs> that's right. And so I said, well, but do you understand why there's violence? And, and one of the discussions we've been in ongoing is, well, they're, they're bad people, right. And they're, they're evil people. Uh, and well, then the question is, well, what do we, how do you know, how do we know they're evil people? And, you know, you've got these vices that, that these people possess and embody, in, you know, and how they treat others, let's say. And so then the question is, well, then how do we know what to do about that? And so, I mean, here he is, and just in a very simple eight-year-old way, he's already making inferences. And, and I would say immediately knowing like, well, the witch is evil. And, you know, the person who's battling the witch is good. And then we can go from there. And so I, I think people back to moral knowledge can know uh, immediately in experience that, uh, a certain kind of basic set of, uh, you know, principles and uh, propositions about what's right and good. And then some of it's inferential. We would infer it from those. And so I'm interested. That's one of the many questions in philosophy that I've been interested in for a long time. Uh, and in referencing back to Dallas Willard's book, The Loss of Moral Knowledge, part of what he's interested in, and McIntyre and others, is that try as they may in their theories to secure uh, moral knowledge uh, for humans, uh, they fail at that. And so what we've actually lost in our culture, and I, I believe this is right, is a shared body of moral knowledge that we can refer to to guide. Uh, are you talking about no, no, are you talking about Willard's knowing Christ today? Are you, t is that the book you're talking about or is it? A different no, I'm book? actually talking about the last book. He, he was working on a book at the time of his passing in 2013. That was about two thirds completed. And it, it, it was completed um, after his passing by three of his students, uh, Steve Porter. Okay. I haven't seen this um, yet. Aaron Preston and Greg Tenelsoff, I believe. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it was published by Rutledge, uh, one of his colleagues at USC. Uh, the name is right there. I'll get it in a second. Uh, is he, is uh, Willard listed as the author of it? Because I'm yes, looking up three him. of them are listed as kind of. Uh, they basically took his the notes disappearance of moral knowledge. I got it. Yeah, it's, I'm going to share my screen here. Yeah, uh, pull it yeah. up. It's it's excellent. It's it's available in paperback now too, which is affordable. Because as you know, with academic books, they're ridiculously well, expensive. There it is. There you that's, go. Yeah, buy used for twenty four. You could get it for twenty four dollars. Okay. The disappearance yeah. of moral knowledge. I have. Let's say here. There you go. Um, there Steve you go. Porter there, so was one of my professors. Greg Tanelsoff was one of my professors. So yeah, we got the whole lineup here. Cool. And th those those uh, gentlemen all studied under him. Yeah, you see, and they're all very capable uh, philosophers. And um, I, again, this is an academic work to be clear to your listeners. Um, but I think if people read the first two chapters and the last chapter, 
they could get the idea of what he means by the uh, the disappearance of moral knowledge. There I'd say go. the first chapter, the last chapters. There Scott were Soames wrote the forward. There you go. He's the one that helped. That's the name. He's Scott Soames wrote the forward. Wow. Yeah, yeah. He That's has cool. Really He's nice a huge name. There. Big name. Yeah. Yeah, I have his uh, history of analytic philosophy in the 20th century. Master. Yeah. What master? For me, that was a masterpiece work. Oh yeah. Of of. I don't know where I would have been without that set of <laughs> trying to well, understand. So, yeah. Soames is a, Soames is a force to be reckoned with. I mean, he's very I, capable and he I helped took, bring the book to fruition. Okay. Uh, with the editors. Uh, 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 that's awesome. Yeah. He was at USC for a while. Is he still there? Do you think? I, I, I'm not sure. Honestly, I believe he was at the time of the writing of this book, but um, Scott Soames. Yeah. Um. He, Uh. you know, I took, in fact, I took, 20th century analytic philosophy with Greg Tanalsoff, <laughs> this guy right here. Yeah, if you wrote. go back to the table of contents real quick, if you scroll back down. Um, so, you know, just to point people, uh, so seven, chapter seven there is all about, you know, McIntyre's view and and the problems that will, I'm very sympathetic to his argument in there, uh, arguments in there of, of the problems that McIntyre's view faces in, in its wanting to try to give us moral knowledge. Uh, through his mm -hmm. type of virtue system, but but doesn't succeed. And uh, uh, Willard is in the virtue tradition too, at least I, I place him there, uh, but he he's more what we call in philosophy, a direct realist, meaning we can be, like I said earlier, uh, directly in contact with the world outside of our heads. Mm -hmm. um, that's how we're built as humans. And so I think that's the case for moral reality, that we can we can know right and wrong. We can know what's good and bad. And um, at least a sufficient subset to guide our lives and know how to treat others and, and promote what's, what's good for all those who come within our effective uh, grasp, as Willard would say. So, Okay. How do we get on this book again? Oh, you were talking we got about on this book. View. Sorry, that was, yeah, that was this a little bit of a trail. View. This is your view after thinking about it for a long time. You think that you kind of were coming from that perspective uh, as you critiqued McIntyre for your MA, I think. That's right. And then you said, well, some of those critiques maybe don't fully uh, work anymore since he changed his mind about some things. Is he still alive, McIntyre? I believe so. Yeah, he, he was at Notre Dame for the longest time. Uh, okay. He might still be there. I'm not sure if he's retired, but... Um... Probably yeah. if he isn't yet, but he, he's, I mean, again, for, for people's sake that are watching and maybe interested in these topics, uh, you know, uh, I can't say enough good about the importance of Alistair McIntyre. I mean, his book after virtue and other, you know, which was like in the eighties really brought a revival of interest in what's what we call virtue ethics. And let, let me just say a, a sentence or two about that. Virtue ethics is in, in ethics is trying to put, uh, the character of the person or the person, uh, you know, there are different ways. If you have a religious tradition, so maybe in, in certain Eastern religions, you know, they might, uh, you know, talk about uh, or, or Ju the Judeo-Christian tradition, you might talk about the heart as the sort of the center of character. In Confucianism and Buddhism, you might have, have something else, right? But it's the inner self or something that's being formed and you act from these virtues, right? And that's important because now the question becomes, do we, we try to form the, per do we focus on forming the person first and the character so that they, 
naturally or by and large naturally do what's good and right? Or do we have more of what I would call an outside in approach where you have the principles first and sort of impose the principles? That would be more of how I would describe loosely a deontology where you've got your rules and your principles and that's more of an outside in. Virtue ethics is more of an inside out. Um, and so I'm, I'm attracted to that. McIntyre was trying to revive that. I think going back to the ancients like Plato and Aristotle, that was, you know, virtue types of, of stuff played a, a really prominent role in their um, systems. Um, and then for history of uh, philosophy, analytic philosophy, you mentioned history of ethics, right? There was kind of a departure from that for a bunch of reasons. And then I think McIntyre and others, uh, Julia Annis, um, Martha Nussbaum at University of Chicago uh, have written a lot to, I think, help revive that um, virtue tradition. And of course, they all take it in different directions. And you've got feminist versions of it, and you've got secular versions of it. You've got uh, religious versions of it. So anyways. Do they, do they all agree that there's something to know about virtue and, and about ethics that yes. you can be directly aware of? I don't think they're all direct realists about the knowledge aspect, but I think they do believe that there is something to know. And that would be now the departure, I think among them would be like the how you know, right? Uh, what, you know, whether and how. So, um, so they're, they're realists, but they're not all direct. Right? I, I would say the majority are realists. Um, majority? So, you is know, there any, are there McIntyre, any McIntyre? Uh, are there any virtue ethicists that are not realists? I don't want to say no. I don't know a name offhand to give you. Um, I, I'm, and well, you again, can just I'm give us our social security number. Need, I think you could, yeah, I think you could, yeah, that's right. I think you could be a, uh, a non realist or an anti realist. Uh, of some kind, I, I'm trying to think of to be as charitable as I can and, and be some, you know, have a virtue system. Uh, I, I imagine you could be some version of a, a relativist, right? And, and say something like um, the virtues are relative to a given culture. They're culturally constructed or something like this. They're made up, but they're not yeah. like features of the world that we go out and cover and discover. Right. Now, again, that gets into all sorts of problems that, you know, other versions of, in my view, uh, other versions of relativism face, which is, well, then kind of to use a McIntyre phrase, like, well, whose virtues, right? Which rationale? Right, right. Uh, right. You, you know, and you don't have, a, I don't think there's a satisfying answer to that. It's just kind of up for grabs. So McIntyre's not a relativist, right? He doesn't want to be, no. <laughs> he doesn't want to be. No, he's, he's not a relativist in, in, in all fairness. He's not. Uh, he's become more Thomistic uh, following the work, uh, kind of the thinking of Thomas Aquinas later in his career. And, and that's helped him, I think, sec secure a more robust realism. Early in his career, when I was writing my thesis, I was, uh, he was still wanting a kind of realism. Um, he was often critiqued that, that he wasn't successful, but to be fair to him, he he wanted that. He he wanted, you know, he he thought that these virtues were um, features of reality. But he placed a really big emphasis on what he called traditions, and that these things are handed down. And there's something there. But again, I think how much you know? Are you talking about tradition is the end game, and so there's no nothing independent of tradition that can sort of um, 
that we can know. So if you're not a participant in a, a moral tradition, can you still know the virtues or do you have to be a, you know, a, a participant in the tradition to know them? And the tradition sort of, you know, these are things that just are constructed within the tradition, right? This is, so that's one of the kinds of back and forth that people had about his view, but he, he really wanted, wants there to be uh, virtues as, as part of reality. And I think the more uh, Thomistic has become, he's become and more uh, Catholic, uh, I think, if I understand correctly, and at least in terms of his religious convictions, I think he's been able to undergird his realism better than in, in after virtue. Okay. Yeah. So he did the moonwalk back to the Middle Ages, in other words. I, I think that I think that's right. Yeah, that's right. Because what he Good did, again, yeah, I, yeah, I think what he did that was in after virtue is this is again my I'm not the only one who reads him this way. Willard would read him this way. Is he likes some things about Aristotle, but he got rid of Aristotle's uh, view of the human person and his his. Uh, he, he, he kind of, you know, he got, he didn't like Aristotle's essentialism and what that means for people who are unfamiliar with that language is that things have a nature, right? Uh, what makes me a human and not a table is that I have a, I possess a human nature, a human essence, and I can't change that. And so applied to ethics, right? The question or, or virtue is, is courage or honesty essentially one thing and not another or or can i just mess with it and make it what i want it to be right and so he he was uncomfortable with essence talk and and i think that opened him up to certain kinds of criticisms that you know why why was he uncomfortable with it well he was relying on uh the later wittgenstein and so he was he he did what we would call uh, taking the linguistic turn in philosophy and what that means again in very s- simple terms is that language is doing something to the things that we're talking about uh dallas willard calls this the midas touch view of uh, of uh of knowledge where when i talk and we talk and we get together and we agree that that over there is is courage mm-hmm. well then are doing that somehow like King Midas touches the courageous act or courage and makes it partly makes it what it is. Mm -hmm. For me, that's a problem because that sounds like we're constructing reality as opposed to discovering reality. Right. Uh, And we're making courage after our own image, so to speak. But then that pretty quickly, if you're not uh, pretty quickly, I think is opens you up to this kind of uh, linguistic constructionism that, uh, is subject to cr- critiques of a certain kind of relativism that he doesn't want. And yeah. I don't want. Yeah. So anyways, well, I mean, the, the sounds are, are, you know, um, the sounds are one thing. What it means is something else. There you the, go. The word courage. When we, when we use the word courage, we, we got to distinguish between the sound and what it looks like in english and of course Wittgenstein, of course was you know writing other languages probably but but what it means isn't the same thing uh it's not it's not uh as temperamental i guess i would say as 
as how it's constructed in language in terms of the reference, the, the way we re refer to it. We use language to refer to it. So, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, very good. No, I was just going to say there uh, on that, if one of the key questions people need to think about here is when I, when we use language is are using it a particular way, what gives it the meaning that it has, or does it have those meanings? And then we figure out how to utilize it uh, right. in conversation to, yeah. as you say, refer to things as they are. And I think it's the second. Wittgenstein thinks it's the former, where mm -hmm. our using right. words a certain way uh, gives it the gives it at least in part some of the meaning. Mm -hmm. And this is, gets in the you know people who are familiar with this right the language games. We're playing a language game, and it has meaning only within the game. It doesn't have meaning apart from the game that we're playing. Mm -hmm. A lot of cultural applications there. Yeah, <laughs> it shows right. up a lot of places right now. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Can you name one place where it shows up just to give us an idea of what you're talking about? Well, you know, I think uh, discussions about, uh, well, I think right and wrong, whether we can call things uh, right or wrong, or they, they're only called that because I refer to it that way, right? And we've agreed in language to talk about um, uh, everything from bullying to, uh, you know, is this really a case, uh, uh, an instance of bullying? Well, that depends on whether if what I call what we mean by bullying is just because we use the word a certain way, or whether there's a feature of the action that essentially makes it an act of bullying, right? Uh, and so when people want to say, you know, dispute that, that that's that's a case of bullying, or no, it's not, or yeah, uh, well, here, here's another one: hate hate speech. Uh, I think you know. I hate, that's a thorny I hate, issue. I absolutely I, hate hate speech. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> I, you know, I have this conversation often with my students in ethics, usually. Right. Like, what do, what do we even mean when we're, we're calling something hate speech? Right. And very quickly, we, we get lost in trying to answer that. That's right. And I think part of that is because of, and again, they, they don't have this in their mind, but right. we don't know what we mean by hate or hatred. <laughs> uh, we don't even know how we use the term, but even if, yeah. if we take not the to mention, I mean, not to mention, is it even bad? Right. I mean, just, just, just starting with that, like, yeah. and if it is bad, why would, why would hate be bad? Um, right. Try to figure that one out. You know, wh how do we come up with the idea that hate is bad? Uh, because it seems like a lot of people hate, hate. And they don't see anything ironic about that at all. They hate hate speech. Right. Uh, and they'll tell you. They will tell you how much they hate it. <laughs> it's like, well, what are we even talking? What do we even mean? Do you, you know, are you anyway, for me, like self-awareness is a huge thing for me. Like uh, how much of your work is just trying to bring people around to some kind of self-awareness about what their views about things are or whether they they're aware that their view is incomplete and there's some work to do i think that's right and i think part of it too here you know back to the issue of, of meaning getting i mean yeah. you do this a lot uh I, you know i've watched some of your episodes and i try you know, <laughs> no no i mean good reason like trying to get clear on our terms right i mean yeah that's right, that's does right. This, like what do we mean by the, but, but see i think that yeah that 
Socratic kind of back and forth is not at its heart trying to get us clear on how we use terms. That might be part of it. At its core, we're trying to get clear on really what do these terms mean? Like what's yeah. hate, hatred mean? And why would it be bad? Or am that's I really- a real, That's a very subtle point you just made. I love how subtle it was, but just in case anybody was missing it, maybe somebody caught that you were making a subtle point, but can you just say that one more time? I know that people have- See the, if I can remember what I just said. <laughs> you you um, made a distinction between how we using language yes and and getting at you you said that the socratic method yeah the socratic method i think is at its heart trying and i would just say the dialogical method at its heart is trying to get it uh, the core of it is what we what really mean. mean what yeah. words mean not yeah. just how we use them yes very good yeah. that was an excellent point i love that it, I mean, that, if someone that's needs- such a that is such a learned, learned, in the best tradition, um, thing to say, get people to think about. Yeah, well, I hope that's helpful. I mean, if, if people want something basic here, I would encourage them to think about how they, well, if if they're around children or have children or even just people younger than than adults. I mean, I find myself a lot of times asking my kids, eight and four, well, are are you trying to say this or are you trying to say this and it's not i don't think what i'm doing there is are you using the word this way or this way it's what do you mean right what are you trying to communicate Mm. or or what do you feel right um Mm. are you sad but sadness means something it doesn't mean something because i'm using the word sad a certain way it really it picks out a real affective feature i'm saying this i wouldn't say it this way to them but it picks out something right? That's real about going on inside of them as a person that other people like them can know what that means, right? This Mm. goes back to the realism. And I can immediately know Mm. what sadness is or have at least a general idea. Mm -hmm. But that I think commits one to the idea that there are meanings, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. And meanings aren't uh, constructed by Mm -hmm. how we. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Uh, that sounds exactly right to me. And I think that's a wonderful defense of the Socratic method because some, if people don't understand what, what it's for, uh, if it's just, so uh, you know, people uh, arguing back and forth and there's no point there, no, there's actually quite a deep point that you can misuse a term. Uh, right. You can, you can use language in a way that doesn't really, Uh, express what you mean or what you know to be true and you might have bad habits you know um, we all do yeah because we're sloppy and we want to save time and we don't really think things through slogan there's slogans that we don't really kind of really zero in on and and it's not really that popular to do that in many circles so yeah that's really awesome you do that you have a really firm grasp of the Socratic method, it seems like to me. Well, thank you. I, I would say I'm still working on it. I mean, yeah, um, you know, I mean, well, we're all a work in progress. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, you know, I try to say this to my students and I mean it, it's authentic that, um, you know, we have to take a growth mindset in these things and no one has right. arrived. Right. I have bad habits, cognitive and otherwise that I'm still having 
to undo and try to re, mm. redo them in in proper Amen. way. Amen, you know, intellectual. So, so I would put, call these intellectual virtues. I like to talk about mm-hmm. these with my students. Like you don't just get them, right? You right. It takes yeah. a lot of hard work, and you mm-hmm. have to be willing to let others uh, point out right when you're not. That's that's a great you're point not too. Doing them, you know, no, that's a great point too. Yeah. I mean, when you when you here's an analogy. I mean, when you see somebody uh, with with large, well developed biceps. Um, you, you know, from your experience that it's, it's probably that they lift weights. You can pretty much, it's either they lift weights or they are a rock climber or they're, they're doing, which is essentially lifting weights because it's your body, right? That's a weight, but however they're doing it, it's exercise and it's dedication. Maybe it's diet and all sorts of other stuff. Rest, the more you, there's something to know about that and there's if you wanted to do that there was there would be a path of progress you could follow right and there's experts on that similarly um but i think people um get this a little bit less sometimes i think a lot of people think some people are just born smart he is really smart but it's just like the biceps nobody's born with biceps like that Right, right. With Arnold Schwarzenegger biceps. It takes a lot of hard work. Yep. And you got to think carefully. There's an expertise about how to make progress. um, And what's the most efficient way to make progress. And And there is a fact of the matter that there is such a thing as real progress. And yeah. in the intellect, you can yes. make real progress, but it, it takes effort and it probably takes some mentoring and guidance. And I think that one thing is missing on college campuses, at yeah. least in some disciplines, um, maybe not in engineering or something like that, but or chemistry or something. But, but in a lot of disciplines, it seems to be missing. Like I would say in the English department, <laughs> um, I mean, you know, somebody can't speak English very well. It's pretty obvious, but, but what are you doing? You know, what's, what's it for? Like at, after a certain point, once you're a competent English speaker, what are you doing in an English department? What's, what's going on there? And, um, and I, I would say it's hard to know sometimes what's going on in philosophy. If you're not like aware of, if you don't have good mentoring, I would say it's hard to know what's going on. I, I think if I didn't have a good mentor in philosophy, I would have been totally lost. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, same here. And, you know, um, I, I'm super grateful for uh, the good people I had uh, in philosophy, but other disciplines too, that I was in before philosophy, but that were very patient with me, but had high standards and point helped point me to the things to read to help me bring things together. And of course I had to do the work. And again, I'm, I'm a first call, uh, first generation college student, as we say, right? So neither of my parents graduated from college. My dad, I think went to uh, maybe a semester of junior college before dropping out because of his parents being ill and stuff. Um, but um, I had to navigate the college thing pretty much on my own. Uh, and that's not a not, I mean, you know, my parents, 
may watch us. I don't know, but I mean, that's not a knock at them. They just, they, their attitude was go to college. And so you have opportunities do better than we did. And I got there and I, my community college students remind me a lot of myself because it's like, I didn't know who to talk to or who to ask questions. And even if I did know, I was afraid uh, I had, in, you know, even though I was a pretty good student in high school, I, I had a lot of insecurities and self-doubt because it, it, the whole system is just so overwhelming. And so you have to have people that care for you and will, you know, guide you. Right. And so I get these students now and they come in my classes and they think, I don't know who's told them this, but they think at least for philosophy that they're going to come in and all philosophy is, is we just tell our, we just vent our opinions to one another and that, and then we get a grade and it's like, well, no, how would you, you don't do that that in physics, right? You know, how how would one grade that? What, what's the evaluation process for that? Right. I th- no, that's not your really opinion. That's not really your opinion. A D. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you <laughs> well know, how do I, mean, I know what your opinion is? And that's very different than saying, well, there are different views here that are rationally defensible. Right. Obviously, I grant that. But, you know, they, they've been told that you essentially just come in and, you know, there isn't there isn't truth. Right. This is part of what's going on in the background. There isn't a truth there in principle. You can't have that in philosophy. Right. Uh, that's the so, true answer. You can't have. Right. Truth. That's the true answer. So, but what I never thought about that right there. Right. And then they start reading these things and it's hard, right? Yeah. Hard to read. And so then it's like, well, it wasn't supposed to be like this. I thought we were going to just get in in groups and talk about whether there's free will or not. And it's like, well, no, like they're really smart people who have thought about this stuff. Right. And, And it's not just to think about it. They're actually, at least historically understood themselves to be pursuing truth. And why? Well, I would say one general thing is because they're interested in questions like what's the good life to lead? And you need truth mm-hmm. to lead a good life. You need knowledge to lead a good life. And so if, if we even start there, now all of a sudden the question becomes, well, how do I seek truth? Well, I got to have some tools, right? I got to have some skills. Mm-hmm. Well, you, like you said a minute ago, you don't just come born with the skills ready, made to go. You got to develop them. And so I, I constantly yeah. find myself reiterating to them, you have to be patient with yourself, with me, with the readings, with the process and, and kind of give yourself to all of that so mm-hmm. that you can develop the skills. And if you'll yeah. trust on that in week one, by yeah, week, there you go. week 16, you're going to look back and go, Oh my goodness. Right. I can, I can do this. And I, I'm actually better at it than I was 16 weeks ago. Hmm. But, but it's like your analogy with the, with the, the lifting it's, you know, you got to work at it. And I think yeah, in our and culture, we want and there's trust, time. there's trust involved that you use that word just a minute ago. There's right. trust. When, yeah. when I walk into 24 hour fitness, I'm already culturally equipped with the raw materials to make progress because I don't have. I I probably have some false beliefs about fitness or whatever. And I I guess I shouldn't say 20, it's a specific gym because they're not really paying us (laughs) commercial for this. But, but uh, my point is, is you've just mentioned a cultural obstacle to learning philosophy on campus and other disciplines as well. I would say, I think so. Other disciplines too. Yeah, that's right. Um, And I think it's uh, particularly challenging in philosophy. Um, But um, the cultural obstacle is the 
the cult the the, the student arrives with all of the I would say the raw materials that they have. They have a mind, they have experience, and they have some link with common sense, which is really what logic and stuff is, is just a, a, a finessing and a, a more exact common sense, I would say, but it's all based in common sense. Otherwise you couldn't get off the ground um, to some extent. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, com it's common sense that I can't rely on common sense for everything. That's I would say that's common sense, right? And that my common sense can be um, surprisingly wrong about maybe, for example, what the shape of the earth is, you know, or something. And then there's a method why I could figure out how to link my experience with what the truth is and that it all hangs together somehow, some way. But but that when I go into 24 hour fitness, I it's, it's easier for me to trust guidance. I would say than it is when you walk on a college campus and, and you don't have, if you have the false beliefs about what philosophy is, um, <laughs> maybe it's laziness, maybe it's lack of curiosity. It seems like, it seems like if, if people had curiosity, they wouldn't have this problem like because it's never been so accessible <laughs> to so many people ever in the history of the world what philosophy is and what's out there i mean it seems like you could easily figure out that there's something more than just sitting around and sharing your opinion and you know bloviating well, not well, to yeah. mention how do you get how do you get evaluated what, what's the evaluation process for sure. I want to, if I can, uh, piggyback on a couple things you just said to add, add a couple things to this. Sure. Um, what I think is a really important discussion uh, for individuals, yeah. especially people who are parents. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, I think you mentioned curiosity. So I would consider that an intellectual virtue uh, or something we can develop, you know. And uh, there's a really neat book that came out a couple years ago called The Excellent Mind by Nate King. That he's a philosopher. I believe he's at uh, he's in Spokane. I, I believe. Um, but uh, anyways, um, it's it's uh, you know he kind of gets going from a basic uh, basically Aristotelian. You know he has Aristotle as kind of his uh, uh, fuel. Is he, is he related to Nat King Cole? No. Okay, no, no. I, I had to ask. Yeah, it's a really great book. You can find it on Amazon. Um, and, and it's, it's aimed at sort of a thoughtful adult or college student, probably, you know, thoughtful high school students could and should read it. But he, curiosity is one of the intellectual virtues he talks about. And mm -hmm. I would wager that. I know, Nate. Children, I've, I've, I've talked yeah, to him a few times. Children have a natural curiosity. To, you know, Aristotle would say we humans by nature desire to know uh, right. themselves in the world. And what concerns me, and, and this is a concern for myself too, is that there are multiple cultural factors that by the time a student, students get to a, be a teen, curiosity, uh, our natural curiosity is getting stunted. And it's because of things like, this isn't a, 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 a complete list, but um, we have 
we want shortcuts for everything. There's got to be this, where we have this very instant culture, technology is instant, food is instant, everything is like instant gratification. And I'm guilty of this too. Uh, and so we have this sort of, we're in a very instant society. That's one thing. Another thing is, uh, I would say we have a very utilitarian. You have to wait 10 days for a gun though. <laughs> right. You have to wait 10 days for a gun. <laughs> it's, it's, it's funny. It, back before there were mass murders, you could get a gun like within a second. <laughs> and, and everything else took longer. There was no pornography. There was no um, internet. There was no uh, instant stock trading. There right. was no, um, you know, there wasn't even, well, maybe there were fax machines. I can't remember, but I guess there was Western Union, which is sort of an right. expensive email system. But there was, you had to wait for a letter in the mail, you know, and now it's like everything else is so instant. It's not good for you, though. Like no, fast, yeah. fast food is not good for you. Right. Um, pornography is not good for you. Right. Um, I actually don't even think email is good for you. And I wonder how much. Yeah. I'm glad you're thinking about this, these cultural issues. Anyway, sorry, I interrupted you. Yeah, no, you're fine. Um, so, yeah, so the instant, the other thing would be, uh, well, a couple others would be like shortcuts. We, and this, I think, connects to the instant. We, we, we find these, we want everything to have shortcuts, right? Uh, and I think this ties into maybe a third thing I'd say is we have this very utilitarian view of education, of so many things where, um, and, and by that, so for those who may not know that term, that, that's an ethics term. John Stuart Mill is kind of the big historic name here. And utilitarianism, it, it, it's all about means and ends, uh, reasoning, and the ends can justify the means. I could theoretically do some use means that are not typically seen as good as long as the end is good. And so when I apply that to education, what, what I think in this, and I brought this up because of curiosity, so that's all in our backdrop here. If if I teach my child or our culture teaches us that, well, the reason you go to school is because you have to and because you got to get grades to finish this grade and, and finish elementary and junior high and high school. And then you go to college and you get grades and it's just a piece of paper so that you can go get a job. All of that is this string of I'm just using this as, as, as something that has no deeper value or meaning than I want to get hired at Google. Now, getting hired at Google is fine in itself, but what ends up happening to education, at least I, I see this cultural force is that, well, now there is, how can I get to that, to the Google end as fast and as easiest and as cheapest as I can? And so I'm just using everything, including the professors and the school and everything in the process as just throwaways to get to that end. And so then the whole process uh, gets cheapened and corrupted and you ended up with this. Uh, I, I think that that's one of the, this, these are some of the reasons curiosity is just, it's totally shot and it happens yeah. long before they get to me in college. Right. So when I see my son, and again, I'm all for competition and things in schools, 
but he, uh, he, he'll ask questions, you know, it's, it's like, well, I got to do this to get this. And I'm like, okay, well, hold on a second. Let's slow this down. What, what's good about reading, right? What are you, what are you getting from your reading and what's good about this? And the whole formative, this goes back to the virtue thing, right? The formative aspect is totally sidelined. It's just about the awards. It's just about the outcomes, right? And so I think when, if you make it all about the outcomes and not at all about the process, you, you lose curiosity, you lose an interest for the pursuit of truth, you lose all these intellectual virtues as, as actual, what I think ought to be aims of education and sports even, and, and moral virtues too, of these other activities. And so one of my concerns right. is for my students, not, not to just mention the football. enjoyment. Yeah, right. Not to mention the sheer enjoyment of being curious yes and satisfying to some extent your curiosity about something that's not nefarious <laughs> you know like i'm not talking about your you have a curiosity about how to build a bomb i'm not talking about that right, right, i'm talking right. about you something bothers you that you're just like what was that answer again why is that now what why was the monarchy bad again? What was, why, why don't we have, why don't we have Kings? I don't understand. It seems like you could have a good King or something like that. I mean, I mean, I, I'm just pulling something out of the air, but, but there's, you know, how did slavery get ended again? Like, seems like it was everywhere. Now all of a sudden we don't have it. Where, how did that happen? You know, I mean, having, showing up with an insatiable, curiosity and yeah. that is something that i universally do not see on college campuses and i've taught 185 courses in at 12 campuses yep. on a variety of campuses so-called christian campuses california lutheran university biola university loyola marymount university Pepperdine University, those last two over a decade, and then five community colleges in two different counties, Ventura County and LA County, in the city of Los Angeles, two of the city, LA City College and uh, LA Mission College, sorry, three of the city, Pierce College is also in the Valley, that's in the city of Los Angeles, and two Cal States, two big Cal States in two counties, Orange County and LA county la city and i i've i've seen that students are the ones that are curious i'm not worried about them i'm not worried about them but they're not in my experience they're not the norm and i have had some great students so i've been blessed in that sense and some of my best students have been the most um, well, some of the ones that have been the most ambitious have been the best. Uh, I can think of, for example, David Phillips, who just finished clerking for the U.S. Supreme Court for Justice Alito. He was a logic student of mine and a business ethics student, an intro philosophy student at Pepperdine. And he was a, a voraciously curious. He, he took enormous care in his work. He really stood out, but he's also incredibly ambitious, went to Harvard Law School, went to seminary first. 
he got into Harvard Law School and he told Sem he told he told Harvard, he's like, I think I want to go to seminary first, so please hold my spot. And nice. they and they hold they held his spot. I mean, can you imagine? I, I can't imagine my my other students that want to go to law school doing that. I can't imagine that them getting into Harvard and then going, actually, hold my beer. I want to go to <laughs> seminary first. Right. Um, but you know, because he wanted to make sure he knew what the Bible meant first. Interesting. It's just like awesome. So, but but a lot of my my most ambitious students, like you've said, like the use you, you use the word use the example of Google, but I've had a lot of students that want to go into like law and stuff, and uh, some of the most ambitious students I've had, I, I've been almost embarrassed to have them as a student just because they're they're they don't have the curiosity they and i and because they don't have that they're toast they're yeah, toast no, I, in life they might they might have a nice big house and a new car or whatever but and maybe some friends hopefully if they i doubt that even but you know it's it's sad to me and i and then there's a lot of people that seem totally lost and they don't have the curiosity and that's heartbreaking for a different reason uh, and then there's some people that gain curiosity. And those are the most proudest moments I have as a professor is you see people that come on the campus, they're totally bewildered and disoriented and they somehow write the ship and you get to see it. And, and, and they have the curiosity all of a sudden. So. Well, I, I appreciate that distinction very much. I think there's a, there is an important distinction between ambition and curiosity. You can have one and not the other or you could have both of those. And, um, and I see it too. I mean, I have everywhere I've taught, I've had really excellent students. Uh, and I mean that in, in the curiosity and the intelligence sense, but I think we can confuse um, ambition with intelligence. And so uh, I think some of Big my time. best students, uh, some of my best students have been people who haven't earned A's in my classes. Yes. And, that's and right. I think, and, and this is that's something, a huge thing, right? What you just said, that's a huge thing. And, you know, you and I both know the, the way the academic game is played. So I'm not, not suggesting what I'm about to say is I'm not going to, I'm not saying that grades are unimportant, but I think, you know, I try to help my students realize that their identity is not their GPA and that they can be a very intelligent, uh, thoughtful, uh, influential person and not have a 4.0, you know, now they might not get into Harvard or wherever they, their dream school is, but again, can you be a good person? And, and let me tell you, I'll, tell you, the answer I'll tell you, I'll tell you a story. This is a very rare story. There's a couple of different examples of this, I would say. And I, I think I know names, but I'm not going to say any names, but I had, I'll tell two different stories here. One is, um, and I, I, I remember these stories because they're just so odd. They're not, it's not commonplace, but probably about 10 years ago, actually it was more than that now in Los Angeles, I had a student that was um, of probably Mexican descent. Um, she was dark skinned, last name was well, I'm not going to say the last name, but it was, it was a, a Hispanic last name. 
And uh, she had she appeared to me to be like a cheerleader type of person. Um, what I mean by that is uh, athletic, probably popular and fun to be around, but not uh, I wouldn't say academically serious is not the first thing you would think about or maybe even the second thing. But she failed the, the midterm. And I was worried about her. I was worried that she was going to complain because in my experience, people who fail, they either take responsibility or they mm -hmm. complain. And there's not, usually there's no, there's, there's very little wiggle room between those two. Well, she, uh, she came to my office hours to talk about failing and she was so embarrassed and she was so taken off guard by the grade that she had. She was incredibly worried about passing the class. And so I, I said, if, you, if you're really serious, you can turn this around. And here's how I would say you should do that. And I said, you know, got to get curious about the material. You have to. Uh, you know, I don't know how she did it. I really don't know. It must have been just the way it must have been a 15% midterm or something like that. Anyway, I, I can't remember exactly the breakdown, but she pulled an A minus in the class. I, I mean, I can't, I can't, I re, and I was a hard grader. Yeah. And I just cannot, I can't. She, did she get an A minus in the class? It might have been a B plus or something, but it was some kind of crazy. It's the most radical change I'd ever seen in any student at all. Mm -hmm. And I had another student that pulled a C plus in the class, not the same class. It was a different class, different year, a female student. She wanted to, I think she wanted to go to law school, but she was just like kind of clueless about really what she wanted to do. I think she broadly wanted to go to law school for the right reasons. I think she wanted to help people. And she pulled a C plus in the class and she was just devastated. <laughs> and I'm not laughing because I think it's funny. I'm, I'm, I'm laughing because it's such a crazy story. She, I thought, again, I thought she was going to complain because I was used to this, especially close. If it's between a B minus and a C plus, I remember it was Christmas time. I said, I, if you want to come talk about your grade, that's fine. I will be at this coffee shop. You have to come to me. It was not in Los Angeles. It was in Orange County. I said, I'm, you know, my contract has ended. So she actually came to the coffee shop. This is wow. the only time I've ever seen. It, there's a few times this has happened in, in, in 15 years, but she came to the coffee shop. She's really, you know, I thought I would, I really admired that because, you know, she's female. I'm male. It's the holidays. It, it's the least convenient thing. I mean, and she was intimidated by me. Apparently I didn't, I mean, I didn't mean to be, but she, she came and she listened to my very frank um, feedback of her whole semester. And she took it in and you could tell it was extremely difficult for her to hear extremely. And it was a little late hearing this. She should have come into office hours two months before you know, or something like right, that. Right, right. She, she, uh, 
she took that very seriously. Anyway, long story short, short story long, <laughs> I ended up writing a recommendation because we stayed in touch. She never complained. She took it to heart. She she um she asked me for a recommendation later after we had our full set of discussions. And I gave her a very positive evaluation where I told the whole story of her development to uh, the law school. And she was actually hired to work for the law school in a very prestigious um, position. It wasn't paid very much, but it was very prestigious. And I, that, that, it, that stands out to me because the law school, I actually talked to the attorney that was hiring her on the phone. We had a, about a 20 minute conversation about this uh -huh. particular girl. And I told her the whole story and that, 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 that stands out to me because the, it was fully truthful. Like it was fully like, they didn't want just a piece of paper. They wanted to know the background story. And then they gave her a shot you know, based on, based on her character. And I, I told them, this is, this is the kind of character you're working with and she will, I love she that. will be responsible. So, yeah, I mean, I love that. I love that. I love that in general, but I love it because I resonate with that in part. And I, mm -hmm. I tell my students this more often now, but I mean, I have a, not law school, but I have a similar story about Myself, it, as an undergrad, my first year, moved away to college, seven hours, eight hours from home, goofed off, you know, and I failed a couple classes. And so I was going to, and it was a private school, so it was not cheap. And I was going to have to take summer school to stay on track to finish in four years. And you mentioned embarrassment. And I, I can remember how ashamed, and I knew what, I, what, what kind of discussion I was going to have at home once I, we had it. But um, I had to go to the office of, of, of the professor, you know, he, he pulled out, at least I'm thinking of one, one was an English course and one was a, uh, I think like a, a biblical studies course or something. And, and it was totally on me. And, and I did what I don't like you're mentioning that I don't like students. You know, I complained, I made it the, the professors too hard, unfair to all of it was untrue, mm -hmm. but I was playing the blame game. But I remember they were patient and gentle and basically said, well, look, here's the deal. Here's the, here's the evidence, right? This is what you did on exam one and di or didn't do on exam one. Da, 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 da. Okay. Did you read? No, I didn't do the reading. Did you do, you know, no. And of course I, I, was, I was deeply, yeah, deeply embarrassed. And mm -hmm. I knew I was goofing around doing things at the last minute. And my dad said to me, remember, he, he doesn't have a college reading. He just basically said, look, here's, here's how this is going to go. Uh, you're going to come home and I was going to work this summer anyways, but he's like, you're going to work extra hours after you're done with summer school to pay for summer school. And, and if this happens again, you're, you're going to be done with college. Now you can think what you will, will about that sort of, you know, is it right to pull your kid? But I, I knew what he was going for. He was getting to the heart of personal responsibility. We raised you better than this. <laughs> Was was in in the background too, and and the like. Look, you're gonna have to like stop wasting your time, other people's time and money, 
and, and turn the ship around. But it was very much in his own way was giving me a, what you described as what I would say is a growth mindset. And I can remember, like you, I had people later, right, these same kind of professors who were willing to advocate for me for graduate school applications and things, because that's what they were looking for, as opposed to, I think, sometimes what we do in these cases in our culture is, it's like you're one and done, and if you don't get it right the first time, you're like in the out, you know, you're in the outer circle. And, and this is one of the reasons I like the virtue stuff, is like, well, we're all in development, and people can turn the ship around, but they need to have face the hard truth. They need hope. Uh, they need resources, right? I'm all for that. And, you know, I, I'm convinced that if you do that for people, you can't engineer it, right? People are still going to make their choices, but a lot of people, uh, and I was one of them, you go, well, oh man, I got to, I got to turn this thing around. Like a lot's riding on this. And so I appreciated people like that. I'm gl glad to hear you share stories like that. Yeah. Where it's, I, you know, I really, what stood out to me uh, just a while ago, about a half hour ago, when you were talking about your son and you asked your son, what is good about reading? That is masterful in terms of paying attention to the growth mindset and developing that curiosity. That That's what I really admire in strong professors is an ability to in a in a non-bull crappy way because there's a bull crappy way to do it especially in politics i think but to foster a curiosity like a genuine curiosity about the world and um that's you do that with your son. <laughs> Why do we read? See, I, I mean, I don't think my parents ever asked me something like that. I, I, I didn't really need it. Cause I was, I'm insatiably curious, probably, uh, from birth. And the reason I say that is cause I, it's always gotten me in trouble. <laughs> right. Um, you know, uh, just, and what I mean by that is, I mean, people get annoyed if you're curious, they, they're, a, you're, I was, I was constantly breaking social norms by asking follow-up questions that no one else seemed to think that's not appropriate to go into that one. But, but I, but don't, doesn't anybody else want to know that, you know, like kind of thing. Is there anything else that you do to, to foster curiosity with your kids? Oh man, you know, maybe I, steal I'm, for the classroom. No, no, you know, I'm learning as I go and I, you know, to, to be, you know, fully transparent, I think that it's a learning process for me, partly because I had to learn it myself and I have it. I mean, I think I, like you have always been curious, but I think there were also uh, cultural f factors that I gave into in my teen years. And I had to undo that stuff in college, particularly as it relates to education and then form, you know, reform and, and yeah. make new habits to develop that. But I think uh, the other thing that I'm trying to do with my kids, but also in the classroom, it's very tempting. And this for me too, it's very tempting to want uh, to succumb to um, not helping people become curious to uh, I'm not saying this very well, but like, and there's pressure in, in higher education. And I think other people, if they're honest, will tell you this to just uh, th there's pressure to um, 
not help people be curious, right? Because, hey, they've paid the money, they got, we got to get them through, uh, this sort of thing. And so, uh, and let's be honest, like, what professor wants to be haggled about grades? Not a single one that I know of. It's very unpleasant. And it always happens when you're depleted at the end of the semester. And so it's very tempting to be like, all right, I give up. I throw in the towel. Yes. (laughs) Right. But I think, yeah. And it's even worse for adjuncts. It's even worse because the contract is ended. The new one hasn't started. Will there even be a new one? Right. Right. And there is enormous institutional pressure to inflate grades. Yeah. And it's very rarely acknowledged by the institution. I, I mean, it's almost like the institution is the dumbest legal person you've ever dealt with because there's all sorts of institutional problems that there's there there's other there there's basic institutional obstacles to learning that the institution seems to be totally unaware of generally speaking um but of course you know you're talking about an institution so it's really about the people there are they aware of it um and oftentimes well, there's no incentive to become aware of it yeah, I, I going back to uh, your question a second ago about uh, curiosity. I, one of the things I'm trying to get better at, and, and this isn't the grade thing, but just in general as a teacher is uh, similar to what I did with my son. Ask questions and invite them into, well, well do you want to, you know, essentially invite them into a learning process. Okay, well, how about you go look at this? Here's something to go read. Why don't you go look at this? And then let's talk about it, right? Because uh, you know, the you know, a temptation for people. I and I'll, again, I'll speak for myself. But I think I've met other, I've talked to other professors like this. I mean, I like to give people answers. I mean, I like to, you know. But I think unintentionally, what what can happen is, uh, you know, if, if someone says, well, you know, what 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 about this uh, argument, and and I'm ready to go with critically analyzing it myself, I can inadvertently and unintentionally. Uh, keep them from being curious and looking into it to think for themselves uh, as opposed to saying, well, why don't you go read this? Think about, and then think about that in relation to the argument you're asking me about further. And then let's talk and I'll tell you what I think about it. So that way they have to do some of the labor, uh, you know, like with reading and my son uh, is so that I'm not just sort of making it fast and easy for them. Yeah, that's good. So I'm working on that. Yeah. And, and and I think like you described the students who are, curious or desire to learn. A lot of students I've found, at least in my experience, haven't been given that sort of opportunity. I would say haven't been taken serious enough as a learner to to treat them Mm. as though they can actually do the labor Mm. and have something to offer. (laughs) Instead, it's it's like we're treated like dispensaries, right? And or we're seen as dispensaries. And it's it's like, well, no, like I'm not going to hand it to you. Uh, I'm not being mean, but, you know, here, go read this, this article on whatever topic, you know, like you're saying is interesting to you. And then uh, let's talk about it. And I've found that as I do that more, the students who really want to learn and who are really trying to form a view, right, form their own view, uh, they benefit more from that than me just going, well, here are the three views on this. Um, I can lay them out for you. Here are the pros and cons. And, you know, let's talk about it. So I'm trying to get better at that. And I, I find that my conversations in office hours and in class are way better 
uh, with students like that. I find myself hearing students say things back to me like, you know, the next semester, hey, I'm still thinking about that. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm still not sure what I think. Like, yeah. I'm, sure, I'm not sure my view down, but I'm, I'm glad you gave me that to read. And to me, that's that's very gratifying because uh, I'm helping, right. I see myself as helping them have the, the tools to stand on their own two feet um, and to know where to look, like how to look for a good source, a trustworthy source and this kind of thing. Dr. Bogosian, you've uh, got a PhD in philosophy. What did you do your dissertation on and what was that yeah. process like? Oh man. Okay. So my save, save, save time. I know we're, we normally don't have such a time limit, but Save time, though, please, for the types of classes you're teaching and sure. what, what yeah, your can, favorite yeah. what your favorite is. Sure, the dissertation was on uh, what's called the epistemology of disagreement. In a question, what that is is um, the, the driving question is: Let's suppose you and I are in, consider each other intellectual peers. We we get talking about some issue in ethics, let's say, and we find that we disagree about that. You take side A, and I take side B. Does our disagreement now provide us, each of us, with additional evidence that should move us to suspend judgment? So here, here are kind of three stances. Uh, one view is that our disagreement provides new evidence that we, each of us should suspend judgment in believing that we're right to believe A or B. Uh, option two is to say, no, we each can dig in our heels and just sort of be uh, dogmatic uh, and no, A is right, B is right. Uh, the disagreement doesn't make any difference. Um, I take kind of a middle view there, uh, at least what I argue for in my dissertation that I call steadfastness, which I believe is an intellectual virtue. Uh, and the idea that I argued for was in a nutshell that you can be rational to, after considering all the shared evidence, let's say, and even knowing that you disagree with a peer, uh, to continue believing what you believe, what the evidence supports, the pre-disagreement evidence supports, uh, uh, as long as, uh, you know, you're, um, you know, you've taken the disagree, the reasons that arise through the disagreement serious in, in philosophy, we call these defeaters. So you've offered me some objections that could defeat my, my view, let's say, but I have something I could say back to those, or at a minimum, I'm willing to go look into it, right? Uh, get curious about it, and um, and then be able to sort of neutralize those defeaters. That that can actually be a virtuous. That that's not dogmatism. Steadfastness is something like standing firm uh, in a way that 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 the evidence would support. And so my my standing firm arises from um, uh, dispositions of character and and taking the total evidence into account. Now, sometimes I should back down if you raise a really good objection, maybe, or, or at least what I should do is reduce my level of confidence in my belief some. Um, I think that sometimes is what I ought to do. And it's gonna, and I believe in taking a case by case approach. You give me a really good objection I've never thought about. And I, I go, well, man, I was 90% sure when I came into this discussion, but now maybe I need to lower that to 80% in light of Lucas's objection. But then go back, get curious about that. And then maybe after I think and read some more, I go back up to 90. Or maybe after I read, I go, man, I don't have a, there's not a good answer here. Now I got to go lower to 70 or something. So there's, this is the way I think about uh, uh, disagreement. The reason, one of the reasons I picked this topic 
is I think it's importantly practical to everything from moral disagreement to political disagreement to religious disagreement. Um, um, I have a deep desire to wanna to try to bring people together to have um, open exchanges on, on controversial issues uh, in a way that doesn't devolve into what we see far too often in our culture right now, which is meanness and vitriol and you know demonizing the person who disagrees with me is what's wrong with our world and this sort of thing. Um, I really believe that we can have reasonable disagreement um, where I see you as a reasonable person, but having a false belief and, may, and you see me as uh, being a reasonable person in the disagreement, but having a false belief. Um, but um, that, that's basically what I did my dissertation on. So that sounds like a very timely application of your dissertation topic. Do you believe that that's possible that we can have uh institutionally sponsored uh true uh, discussions that are designed to foster kind of a community that you're talking about where we can I think it's possible uh but i think it goes back to at least in our present day um i think you have to create that culture from the top down um it's not sufficient to have faculty like myself who believe in it and, and strive for it if at every turn you're, you're running up against institutional culture that you know that, that, that is, is even unintentionally stifling it. So um, you know th this might be a topic for another podcast, but I, but I, there, I do believe it's possible and I know there are groups like Heterodox Academy. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of them. This is a bipartisan, politically bipartisan group of faculty in, uh, across the country, uh, at least from two and four year institutions that just believe that open and free exchange of ideas is like a kind of first freedom that we, we, we got to not allow to go to the wayside any further than it has, recover it more, uh, more so that we can um, pursue truth and we can, um, have knowledge and, and ultimately flourish as a society because we all lose, uh, when we don't have this and, and we all win, I think when we can have an open exchange. So it's got to start from the top down, but I think these little grassroots efforts like the heterodox Academy, where you have people from different political persuasions, all saying the same thing, like this, there's, there's legit worries here that this is, you know, not what it needs to be in higher education. Um, I'm glad to see that, that they're speaking up on behalf of um, open exchange of ideas. But yes, I think it's possible, even if it's not currently as actual as we would like it to be. <laughs> right. You've, uh, you've mentioned that your specialty is epistemology uh, in uh, philosophy. What's, what's epistemology and um, follow-up question? which kind of gives the answer away to the first question. How do we know things? Yeah, so uh, I know we've, we've, we've got a little limit on time here. Um, I will point people to a prior episode of yours that I saw where you interviewed Trent uh, Dougherty. Um, he's an excellent philosopher and epistemologist. Uh, there are others I think you've had on. But epistemology is basically the air, what I would consider to be one of the key 
pillars in philosophy where you were trying to answer the question, uh, what is knowledge and how do we know what we know? And so in general, uh, I mentioned Aristotle earlier and I, I agree with this. He said humans by nature wanna know. And I think knowledge, having knowledge, not just an opinion, but having knowledge is essential for human flourishing. And so um, some of our typical sources of knowledge would include experience and perception, testimony, memory, um, intuition. And by intuition, it's not just a gut reaction, but we immediately uh, understand the concepts or immediately intuit cognitively the truth of you know, all bachelors are unmarried or two plus two is four. Once you understand the concepts, you just immediately kind of um, mentally grasp the, those truths. So I think those are, can be sources of knowledge and evidence. Yeah. Um, say those for, sources, say those sources one more time in case somebody's listening and they think you just named a bunch of stuff and they weren't really fully paying attention to what it was sure, yeah. exactly. So, but these are sources of knowledge pretty common yeah. sense, but go ahead. Yeah. Experience. And I think that's broader than perception. If by perception, people just think of like the five senses. Okay. So I think conscious experience, perception, mm -hmm. um, testimony. So think of, of the legal system. I mean, that's pretty primary as is experience in, in um, other people telling you stuff. Yeah. People who are, you know, you mentioned experts earlier, but not only experts, but people, someone you trust. Right. Um, books, maps, websites. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, memory. So my knowledge of not going to the high school prom because I wasn't allowed to is based in memory, <laughs> even though right. I was allowed to go to the after prom. Right. That's for another day. Uh, but um, okay. So memory uh, and then um, uh, intuition, some call it uh, intuition. Uh -huh. And that's, that's probably one of the most controversial sources. Uh, and there's reasons for that, but that's immediately kind of grasping the the truth of a claim or a proposition or uh, intuiting the meaning of an experience maybe, or something mm -hmm. like this. Um, yeah. And I would even say there are people immediately know um, there are some people who just seem to know when a person's bad, you know, they encounter <laughs> yeah. public and, and you just go, something's not right there. I, I think they're probably, right. they immediately know an experience there encountering um the the person's character or this sort of thing but that again so yeah so those are sources of knowledge and again those can be overturned in light of other evidence but i think i tend to you mentioned common sense i think that's where we start i think our knowledge base uh, and our beliefs are innocent until proven guilty not guilty until proven innocent and I, and that's a nice way of saying, I'm not a skeptic. I think skeptics think that our knowledge and our beliefs are guilty until proven innocent. And, and I, I, I'm not a skeptic. So I think generally we know, we know some stuff. Um, and again, that can be overturned. Uh, I think a lot of our beliefs are justified, right? They're supported by reason, good reasons. Uh, those that can be overturned. But again, I think those are innocent until you have a reason to believe that they're overturned. Yeah, it's very common sense. I love, uh, I, it seems like everything in your approach is friendly to the best in common sense. I love that. A lot of people don't realize that philosophy can be, you know, just really kind of refining your common sense. 
I, I think, you know, I encourage people all the time, you know, at the community college, I teach students who are not going to become philosophy majors. Most of them yeah. take one, maybe two right. classes for transfer, but I, th- it's very gratifying. I encourage this. If, if they will see how, like you just said, how practical and important it is to learn how to think well so that you can live well, it, it, it translates into any discipline you go into to, I think being a philosopher has helped me be a better parent in certain ways. Um, you know, it'll help you be a better person on jury duty, you know, and, and, and analyzing evidence. Um, so, you know, pick up some philosophy stuff, get curious about it. P- maybe start with a topic that you really want to think about, you know, ethics or God's existence or it, whether or not there's an afterlife and what it might be like. Do you believe uh, God exists? I do. Yeah. Yes. So I'm, I'm what philosophers call a theist. And so I believe there are good reasons for that. You're, you're atheist. I'm a protheist. <laughs> no, so I believe the guy. He's not an atheist. He's right. a theist. There you go. There you go. Poor distinction. Believe. Okay. What tradition are you in? In theism? Yeah. So I'm a I'm a Christian. Uh, I'm a follower of Christ. I've and... Heard of that? How do you spell it again? Christian. C R C R. I think the later. spelling expert is your next episode, but. Um, <laughs> The spelling bee champ. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, yes. Yeah. So that that's uh, deeply informative and uh, for how I live my life and um, how I raise my kids. And um, I, I see, I understand Jesus as Dallas Willard would say is the smartest man who ever lived. And I never yeah. thought of that until I read Willard. And uh, yeah, I didn't I would, either. It said that to me when I was younger. I mean, um, honestly, being a philosopher, wired like I am yeah. uh, in uh, faith communities that I was raised in or been a part of, I think the anti-intellectualism has been a, something that's been really hard for me. I've been told that I think too much. Yeah. Uh, shamed, shamed, shamed for asking shame questions, mm-hmm. shamed for so, collecting books. I was you, almost, have a, you have a lot of books. I was almost run out of youth group in uh, middle school for asking too many questions and I was unsatisfied with answers. And so, but I'm grateful for my parents that they did not succumb to that. They, they encouraged this and yeah, dinner table. Yeah. My mom, especially just a bright, wise woman and uh, cultivated the life of the mind uh, in me. And so what's your favorite class to teach? I don't know that I have a favorite, but I, uh, intro to philosophy and and ethics are two of my favorites. (laughs) Um, and I teach those every semester and I know in grad school, lots of people are like, they don't want to teach intro level classes, but I just, I love it. I love love it too. The questions I love getting the challenge to turn people onto this stuff. Um, and I just, I think it's really important. And now I did, I do teach in our honors program here in this spring. I just taught a seminar on the meaning of life. And that was a, a, a greatly rich, uh, class to teach with really motivated students and this is at clovis community college that's right in california honors program what was the name of the class the one you're talking I entitled about? it finding meaning in a mad world finding meaning in a mad world wow that sounds like a great class i would have loved to take that class with you finding meaning in a mad world well they gave you the freedom to come up with a class like that yeah. And, it, it, you know, I ran it through the uh, honors committee and, you know, and again, it was, we looked at a range of different views and, you know, we, we read Camus and we read 
um, you know, uh, Luis Poyman, you know, so we had a diversity of views, everything from nihilism to, you know, um, theistic accounts of meaning. So it was very, it, we had great discussions. Hmm. So, okay. But yeah. So I, I love teaching most everything I get to teach. I, I mean, I really enjoy. So you're a blessed man. Uh, doc, <laughs> Dr. Bogosian, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your expertise with us about philosophy and education, higher education including a few little nice little snippets about raising children, which is just wonderful. Um, is there anything that uh, you want to say before we sign off? Oh, well, thanks for having me. And, you know, um, you know, I want to encourage people, whoever the listener is at what any age to have confidence that they can use their minds to seek truth and to come to know it and to not lose heart if it gets difficult, uh, but to seek out wise people and, and trustworthy sources uh, in their pursuit. And I think if they'll do that, uh, they'll find that their life is enriched and deeply meaningful and um, that there'll be more fun in conversations too. So <laughs> there you go. That's thanks right. So much. That's right. Well, thanks, Chad, for coming on. We appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Take care.